Welcome to The Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. Up until a few years ago, I never even heard of critical race theory. But uh, since then, it seems that I can't stop hearing about it. Uh, what it is that they're trying to get it into elementary schools, that it's Marxism, whatever. So I want to learn about it. So to do so, I've brought on a, a guest today to talk about it. He's an associate professor at Temple University's College of Education and Human Development in the Department of Policy Organization and Leadership Studies. Charles A. Price, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Michael. I'm happy and pleased to be here. Okay, so you wanted to say something before we got started. Sure. I just want to um, be clear for your audience that I am not an expert in critical race theory. However, I am well-versed in the theory because of my research and work around race and identity, and because I also teach uh, undergraduates and graduate students about race. So I don't want to claim to be the be-all um, in terms of my response to some of our question, your questions and our discussion. Okay. Thank you very much for letting sure. us know. Okay, so in order to understand this, we, we there's some other things we have to understand. I believe we sure. can't just jump right in. So for starters, what was the Frankfurt School? Okay, so I think that's a really good place to start, Michael. And it's a really good place to start because we can think of the Frankfurt School as being the foundation in terms of the ideas um, and, and some of the core tenets of what would become critical race theory. In fact, all of the, and I'm gonna put these in air quotes, all of the critical theories, right? And there are other critical theories beside critical race theory, right? So let's just start with the Frankfurt School, right? So even before, let's kind of turn that around a bit. Let's start with critical theory. Okay. okay? So critical theory describes a body of thought that's associated with a number of academics, mostly philosophers, not all philosophers, but mostly philosophers, names like Theodore Adorno, uh, Jürgen Habermas, uh, Max Horkheimer. These were all philosophers who would become the foundation of what we call the Frankfurt School. These are mostly German philosophers and they're coming out of a sort of German paradigm in terms of questions in philosophy, questions and uh, social institutions and so on. So it's mostly German in its origins. And so at least for that first generation, we can think of the Frankfurt School and critical theory as synonymous, okay? Um, people would probably argue perhaps after the 60s, you know, criti critical theory becomes much more diverse in terms of its threads and strands. But I would say that it's safe to say that uh, critical theory and the Frankfurt School were synonymous. Okay. Okay. Now a little bit more about the Frankfurt School. So the Frankfurt School was, and I'm thinking that first generation, some of those names that I just shared with you, um, they were inspired particularly by uh, Karl Marx's work and Sigmund Freud's work. Okay. And again, that's kind of in that tradition of German idealism. And if we think about critical theory, what are some of the ways that the theory at the time distinguished itself from other theories? So that I think that's one way to think about it. So one way it distinguishes itself from these other theories of the 1930s, for instance, the Depression era coming up to World War II, is that it was concerned with questions of justice, questions of emancipation, of liberation, of freedom, of power relations, and justice. So 
if we kind of fast forward just a little bit and look back, we can begin to see how critical theory could become the foundation for critical legal studies, all right? We'll talk about that in a second. So with that emphasis on these things, you probably ask, well, what are they concerned with, right? That they are asking these questions about emancipation. So this is my interpretation. So I want you and your audience to take it as such, right? So one way to think about this would be to pose a question of um, how and why do humans enslave themselves and enslave others? And so what do I mean by enslave ourselves? How do we get caught up in and perpetuate systems that oppress us, systems that indoctrinate us, um, and how these orders work in common everyday spheres of life? So work, our religion, um, our institutions of education, what's happening in those areas, those arenas of those institutions that lead us to act in ways that literally imprison ourselves, that prevent us from being the free individuals, uh, um, the caring individuals, the equal individuals that we could possibly be. So that was like the animating question, right? Also though, you know, if you talk about uh, enslavement in terms of involuntary servitude, there's also that question of why, why do we do it? Why do people do it? Um, how do they do it and who benefits from it? So they were really interested in questions of, of equality, of justice, of liberation, emancipation, all of these things. And mind you now, you got to put this in the historical context, right? World War I, on the precipice of World War II. Um, all the horrors of World War I, there for everyone to see. And here we are about to do it again. You know, why, what, what's going on? Also, you've the Great Depression. How is the system failing so many people? And are there alternatives to, you know, capitalism? Are there alternatives to war? So these were the kind of questions that animated the, the critical theory in the Frankfurt School. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of watering it down a bit, but I also want your listeners to be able to kind of make some sense of it without getting too complex. Now, the reason it's called critical theory, right, is because they believe that the function of philosophy wasn't just to explain things or the function of education is not just to explain things, but to criticize, right, to criticize yeah. existing structures, existing institutions. So they crit criticize, for instance, capitalism, obviously, they're, you know, right. they're derived from Karl Marx. Mm -hmm. But a lot of... Uh, there's like, like a lot of critical critical theory has expanded far and wide. I mean, even when yes. I'm, uh, you know, when you, if you take criminology, there's yeah. critical criminology theory. So yeah. it's not yeah. just like criminal, you know, criminal, uh, not criminal, sorry. Critical race theory is the only sort of offshoot of critical theory. There's, there's a lot of them. And you actually right. anticipated my, my next question, which was going to be what is critical legal theory? Because okay. that actually precedes critical race theory, right? Yeah, exactly. And you're very, very um, accurate in what does the critical mean in critical theory. So you, you're right on track there. And so um, as you point out, and, and we would expect this with any theory that that is sufficiently powerful that people can answer questions, that it would evolve and it would develop further, right? In fact, that's what should happen. And sometimes that doesn't happen enough. So the thinking of uh, critical theory really begins to seep into other 
areas of intellectual life. And one of these areas is law. And so by the 1970s, um, you have a number of scholars who are beginning to question the functioning of the legal institutions of American society. And the questions they're asking really are about how does the law actually work? And can we separate um, how we think the law should work with how the law actually works? Because when we talk about the law, the things that we talk about are fairness, justice, uh, objectivity, value neutral. The law is fair to everyone. Justice is blind, knows no favors. And the critical legal theorists were beginning to ask questions about, well, actually the law works very differently from that. And in fact, if we go back to the Powell question and the Frankfurt School, one of the dilemmas they pose is, is that the wealthy and the powerful are better positioned to use the law to promote their own interests than the average ordinary citizen. So that automatically right here, there's a bias in the system that we have conditioned ourselves to overlook. okay? That we're not really all equal in front of the law. Some people are actually more equal than others and it has a lot to do with their status and their wealth. So they began to ask those kinds of questions of the law. And so that's kind of like where the critical part comes in, right? The questioning whether the law can actually be completely neutral. Uh, can it be completely fair? Um, can it be completely objective? And if it can, what are the conditions that we need to put into place to make the law operate in terms of the ideals we have about the law? They also were trying to do something else that the critical theorists were doing, which is to attack ideology. Mm -hmm. So for them, law, American law was predicated on a number of ideologies, meritocracy, that if you work hard, um, if you're talented, you'll get your reward. You know, um, another is fairness, right? That we're all able to compete equally in whatever arena. So that there are these ideologies that we have about the law that really condition us to really not pay attention to the way the law actually works. So I think I said this, but you know, critical race theory goes back um, to the 1970s. And many of those critical legal theorists were people who were civil rights lawyers, or if they weren't involved in civil rights struggles, they were certainly familiar with those struggles. And so you had um, a kind of um, cohort of thinkers who were sort of disposed toward asking these kinds of questions and that critical theory kind of provided that framework or that umbrella for them to really um, give some substance to those questions and to really try to get them uh, into an arena where you can intellectually debate them. Okay. Now, the other thing I would put, go ahead, sure. Well, uh, so not only though did the critical legal theorists say that we weren't adhering to the ideals that you point of, but they actually attacked the ideals as well. Right. They, they didn't think that did. these were, were proper ideals, but there's sort of this, I can, I don't know how else to describe it, but dishonesty with like, for instance, when it comes to individual rights, they attacked mm -hmm. the notion of individual rights as a fiction, but yet said we should use the notion of individual rights to pursue the agenda that we you know what the given agenda that we want to use. Mm -hmm. Right. So is, is, is that accurate? I just want to make sure that I'm, 
understanding it myself and also able to sort of communicate it to the audience as well. Right. So I think you're right to point out their critique of individual rights, but they were also um, jockeying to make legitimate the issue of collective rights. Um, and that why should you privilege individual rights over collective rights, that there should also be collective rights. So they did attack many, uh, and I think attack is the wrong word, let's not use that word. They did deeply criticize many of the, like I said, the cherished ideals of American law. And another one that I did mention was challenging the notion of law being colorblind, right? So there were a number of criticisms that they leveled against the legal system. And, um, you know, maybe I'm getting ahead, but before I move on, maybe you have another question or observation? Just in, in critical legal theory is really closely tied with criminal rate, cr critical race theory. So if I, if, you know, mix them up, just let me know. But from what right. I remember reading is that they even, uh, uh, if I used the word attack before, I'm sorry, I don't mean to use it. it is, that is a bit hyperbolic. But they, they've criticized. I think we all kind of fall into that. Yeah. Yeah. They, they've criticized the notion, at least some of them have, of the interpretation of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You know, judge not by the content of your, uh, you know, not by the color of your skin, by the content of your character. M many people, you, you know, especially, you know, in my education growing up, took that as Dr. King wanted a colorblind society. But right. the critical, either the critical legal theorists or the critical race theorists, maybe both have actually challenge that notion right that that's what he wanted and they challenge the notion that that's a good thing they don't think that we should have a, a colorblind society right and I, I that i think you're right in that regard that certainly that's a very legitimate interpretation i would add that another issue is, is that most people don't have a very thorough grasp of dr king's thinking and how his thinking evolved over time and a lot of his speeches and his you know his very powerful statements and observations get taken out of context and so i think what you did was you gave um that you know um i have a dream kind of idea um some context right that it's not simply about you know um erasing race uh, or making race invisible but really what do we need to do to, you know, in some ways, kind of like the critical uh, theorists, right? What do we need to do to fully emancipate and liberate ourselves so that we can perhaps live together uh, more equitably? Okay, so we've covered a little bit of critical legal theory. We've traced back to the, the Frankfurt School. So now, when does critical race theory come about and how is it tied to critical legal theory and critical theory more broadly? So I'm not exactly sure of the origins. I, I do know that they had their first major conference in 1989. So a lot had to be happening before then. So let's probably go back to the early 80s. But I was thinking about this this morning and I realized that in a sense, critical race theory actually came, the roots of it kind of go to Harvard University and a particular issue at Harvard. And I don't remember all of the details very well, but it has something to do with the uh, the fact that Harvard had very few, I think it maybe had one black law professor, maybe zero. And so I don't wanna, I may be wrong there, but it was it was like one or zero, something like that. And so some of the black law students were asking the question, well, why aren't there black law professors here? Why aren't there more? 
And so the dean says, ah, oh, well, you know, it's really hard to find these guys. You know, there aren't many of them. And, you know, the kind of undertone of it was that, you know, most of them aren't really Harvard material. And so that kind of set the students off to, to say, okay, um, we've got to do something about this. And I, I know also that it revolved around um, the teaching of a particular course at Harvard Law. And it might have been a course about race and discrimination or race and racism or something like that. So many of the students who became the foundation thinkers in critical race theory were some of those Harvard Law students who were in this kind of tussle with the Harvard Law Dean about why there were so few black faculty and what's the thinking behind the rationalizations that he provided. Because he, he pretty much put his foot in his mouth several times and made it more difficult for himself. So in a way, that, that's kind of like the origins. But let's just step back for a second, Michael. Um, the, those same students who would become the kind of foundation thinkers of critical race theory also became disenchanted with critical legal studies. Okay. And part of the disenchantment that came out of that was that many of these, um, it was mostly African American, but you know, other students of color were that critical legal studies you know, despite his critique of colorblindness was, you know, not very diverse. And it tended to represent the thinking of the dominant, you know, the, the majority of the, the, the students and professors who were white. And so they began to ask, you know, is not race important? And shouldn't we factor race into a critical legal perspective? And they got a lot of pushback. And so I think that's another impetus that kind of drove them to say, okay, what kind of framework do we need to develop that will integrate race into how we understand, interpret, and make law? So it's also kind of tussled with critical um, legal studies as well. Derek Bell is one of the foundation thinkers. Um, Kimberly Crenshaw is one of those Harvard students that I was telling you about. Um, so critical race theory really seeks to put race front and center into the analysis of the law and of policy more broadly and generally, right? And so it also assumes that um, race and racism, and we can talk about the racism part, but that race certainly has to be factored into our understanding of any institutions in American society. Um, but they would also suggest that race is pervasive in America and that we need to be able to identify how race and racism work in different institutions, whether it's education, whether it's voting, voting excuse me, whether it's um, uh, penal policy and practice and so on. So let me stop and give you a second to check in. What, what I find very, what I found very interesting when I started, I was in prison when I started studying a little bit of critical race theory. And okay, what, what I found, that wasn't really relevant, but it was just came to my head where I, where I read the book. I had my sister send me a book on it and I read, you know, read a few other things. But what, what surprised me was that critical race theory is a legal theory. See, when I had been yes. hearing when I had been hearing about it in the news on the radio, it's just presented as if it's just a philosophy, and but it wasn't just a philosophy. It's specifically a legal philosophy, you know, pertaining to to law. And I remember because the the 
you know, there was a lot of uh, to do about they're going to be teaching this to elementary school yes. kids. And I said to myself when I read that, there's no way. And I'm not a proponent of crit critical race theory, but I'm a hardcore <laughs> capitalist libertarian. But OK, but honesty is, you know, truth is truth. There's no right. way they're teaching that to elementary school kids. Right. right. <laughs> right? It's just right. it's just not a legitimate claim. Well, you just unpacked a lot there, Michael. So. I, I, I wrote down a quote I want to share with you. And I'm, I'm going to tell you what I think this kind of sums up the problem that critical race theory faces now um, and how it has been manipulated so much. So this is um, a quote that I took from Kimberly Crenshaw. And she published this probably, oh, so it's the 20th anniversary of critical race theory that she published this piece in Connecticut Law Journal. And here, I think she's completely right. So let me read it and then we can talk about it. So this is a direct quote. In embracing the language of diversity, the Civil Rights Coalition endorsed a shift from a discrimination paradigm already somewhat limited in its capacity to capture the fuller dimensions of racial power to its distant cousin diversity. In the same way that diversity erased the particular dimensions of racial subordination in education, especially in its institutional and structural synergies, the widespread articulation of diversity as a stand-in for race reform helped to marginalize racial injustice as a contemporary phenomenon, unquote. So really, and I kind of concur with this view, that part of, and I can't say it's necessarily bad, but I think the effect has been to dilute the primary purpose and thrust of critical race theory is that it, it kind of opened up to embrace diversity. Our diversity-minded people began to draw on critical race theory. And so that foundation of critical race theory that you identified, that focus on inequities in the law, focuses on voting rights, focusing on education rights, um, focusing on property, those kinds of things that were kind of key to issues around racial injustice have gotten kind of pushed to the side. In fact, many of the people you talk to who who promote themselves as critical race theorists are not really that familiar with that part of critical race theory. And so it's much more now about diversity. And what happens when you get to diversity is that now you've kind of opened it up to everyone, all right, and to every issue. Because now critical race theory is being taught in diversity trainings and one-day workshops. Uh, so I bet teachers somewhere do get a taste of critical race theory, right? But they're not getting the substance and the context that I, I thank you and commend you for allowing you know, people to have to make sense of critical race theory. So it becoming popular has been to the detriment of critical race theory in my, in my view. See, what you just said there, I, I like, because I don't, I wouldn't doubt that somebody can pick up elements of, of critical race theory or the, for lack of a better word, the spirit of it and communicate that in an elementary school or a middle school, even high school context. Right. What I'm saying is that like that quote that you read from Kimberly Crenshaw, a, a, an eight, nine year old kid is not grasping that. You know, there's no way that can be taught. Right. And, and I think as happens often is people go if, if, overboard. If you want to critique the idea of kids, learning for instance in the you know instance of white people that you know your ancestors are racist or your ancestors are slave owners if you want to critique that specific thing then critique mm -hmm. it and make your argument 
But when you try to critique and say, well, they're teaching critical race theory, you're going to lose because it's obviously false. It, right. It's just, it's, I, I mean, I, like I said, I, I had about a 600 book that I had my sister send me on critical race theory and I'm a pretty well-read person and it wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, oh yeah, let me just, you know, skim through this and get a grasp. That's, that's right. a tussle to, to make it through that stuff. Right. And as is, so what I did was I went out and I bought, you know, Horkheimer, Adorno, I, I read some of their stuff. In this stuff, that's is, even more that's even more difficult to digest. Yeah, especially because they're not particularly concerned in the case of Adorno and Horkheimer with internal contradictions. Right. So you can read something on page thirty that completely contradicts something they're saying on page sixty, and you know then it's like okay, well, what is the real view here? Right. So I, I just from my vantage point, and like I said, I'm not an advocate. I wanted you know I want to critique critical race theory. Right. But you have to critique it honestly and accurately right. if you're right. going to be taken seriously, unless you and unless you're just concerned with appealing to, you know, a mob who doesn't want to understand anyways. So the first I mean, there I, I have a critique. Right. And my critique is that um, critical race theory has been diluted to the point that um, it's not as effective as it used to be. So. And, you know, so this kind of takes us to the next, you know, kind of part of my perspective on this is that it, critical race theory, because it became so popular, you know, it started popping up in places that, you know, there's another racial framework, um, race formation theory. I don't know if you're familiar with that. To me, that's a much more powerful, coherent framework. I mean, I like the legal, I respect the legal stuff that Crenshaw and Bell and all of those did. That's solid. Um but if you want something that's even more expansive, you know, check out race formation theory. But that's not on the radar of most people. You know, you got to be an academic. I've never heard you know, of it personally. Yeah. Right. Um, because it's really kind of asking us to understand race in um, a multidimensional way. All right. At many different levels. And I think it's a much more powerful way to talk about race and how race changes in any society, American society, than critical race theory has become. Um, so, so then we have to ask the question, then why critical race theory? And I think it's because it seeped into the popular consciousness and it became a tool, a political tool, Michael, to push an agenda of certain folk who have certain feelings, (laughs) I'm being a little vague here, have certain feelings about the world right now. And so one of those feelings, one is, is that liberals are taking over, all right? The progressive liberals are taking over. They've taken over everything and indoctrinating our children and our citizens. And we've got to do something about it. We've got to roll this back. Um, two, and I believe this, I don't necessarily have, maybe I, I, what I'm trying to say, maybe I don't have a mountain of evidence, but I deeply believe that there is a, a, a deep-seated fear among a substantial section of white folk in the United States who really do not want uh, a historical reckoning with America's past. And so that everything possible is done to block that at just about every turn. So this whole thing with critical race theory in a way is not that new. I mean, I don't know how old you are, but can you remember the fights that they had over um, um, whether or not Cleopatra was black? 
you know, and the attack on black studies at that particular point in time, uh, Afrocentric studies. Um, and uh, I don't remember that, it at the time. I've read about it since. Yeah. Yeah. So there are these uh, kind of fights over what people are taught. And a lot of that fight is about restricting of uh, restricting everyone to a very narrow understanding of American history in particular, but I would say world history in general, right? And what does that mean? Uh, that means that we, we're not talking about uh, Jim Crow, okay? Uh, we're not really talking about the impact and effect of slavery and how that had to do with building wealth. We don't want to have those discussions. We don't want to talk about exactly how Native Americans ended up on reservations, um, how they can be sovereign nations, but they're really not sovereign nations. You know, those are discussions that a lot of elites don't want to have, and they don't want it seeping down into the education of their older children and their younger children. So it's really about a fight over uh, knowledge and information. And, and this happens over and over in American society. You know, we can go back to the 1850s with the know nothings, right? Who, you know, if you if you didn't know better, you would think that these are the same people, you know, 1850 and 2021, you know, they were anti-immigrant. They said the Pope was out to destroy American society. Um, the Irish were dangerous. Um, you know, they whipped up all this sentiment that had very real consequences. You know, people got hurt, people were beaten, people were excluded. And so I think we're struggling with that tendency of American thinking, which in my mind is that small percentage of American society that I realize now is going to always be on the wrong side of history. Just that's a part of our reality. You know, that's just a part of the society. They're going to be on the wrong side of history and they exert more authority, uh, excuse me, more influence or less influence at different points in time. And right now they're exerting some pretty powerful influence. I want to address the, the stuff you just talked about, but first, well, first I want to, I want to just mention your comment about the, the, the Irish, because when mm -hmm. I get into debates with some people about immigration, they make the same claims now about people coming over the Southern border that were made about the Irish, about the Jews. Yes. I mean, these are the, the, yep. the Chinese. It's Catholics. Not a new, yeah. It's not a new dynamic. Right. It, people seem to, to, just I don't know if it's a fear of difference or, or or what it is, but the arguments stay the same, although the people that they're made against change. Yeah. But before yeah. I, I address the historical stuff you talked about, how or even if it does, is critical race theory related to, for instance, the 1619 project or the anti-racism of Ibram X. Kendi or, or um, the Black Lives Matter movement? Are these things connected or they have some, I, I know Black Lives Matter has some roots in Marxism, but I don't know how tied it is to right. criminal race theory. All right, so I, I saw those questions and here's my thought on, on those questions, right? Or that question. I don't think that either Black Lives Matter or the 1619 Project are directly linked to critical race theory. However, I do think that critical race thinkers have used the 1619 Project or used the 1619 Project or use Black Lives Matter as evidence to support some of their claims and theories, okay? So I I make a distinction. I don't think that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't conflate those two, but I would certainly say that there are folk who kind of look to that kind of work and say, see, this is what we're talking about. Um, 
And, you know, I, I do think that the 1619 project is impressive. Um, a lot of this stuff I knew already, but I'm glad someone kind of pulled it all together so that others can use it. And, you know, Black Lives Matter, um, like social movements can do when they have some influences that they um, bring into the wider public consciousness, things that are literally invisible. I mean, you know, and it takes time for those movements to really have that effect. And I think Black Lives Matter had a lot of impact early on. Uh, whether this continues, I'm not quite sure about it. But to answer that part of your question, I see those two efforts as distinct from critical race theory, right? Okay. Now, on the anti-racist part and anti-racism, I do see a relationship between those because if we go back to my observation about diversity creeping into critical race theory, then part of a lot of this diversity thinking is about anti-racist training, um, anti-racist thinking. And so I, I think that there's a strong connection there between the anti-racist thinking and critical race theory. Again, I wouldn't conflate them completely, but I do think that there's a connection there, especially on the diversity side of the equation. Okay. So first, I wanted to say something about Black Lives Matter. Because mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter is not just what the name implies, right? right. It's not Black Lives Matter, let's advance the cause of Black people. Right. There's a lot of Marxist, Marxism in there that goes beyond race, that has to do with class and, and critiques of capitalism. There's this, uh, the, you know, what also derives from Marx, the abolition of the nuclear family, the critique of the mm -hmm. nuclear family, the promotion, and I'm not opposed to promoting gay rights by any stretch of the imagination, mm -hmm. but that is part of it. Mm -hmm. So I, I just, I think it's important to understand that when some, because if somebody says to me, black lives matter, well, of course, black lives matter. You right. know what I mean? But there's a difference between supporting this, the, the title and supporting right. the, the organization, because the organization right. is much more than just what it's called. Mm -hmm. Okay. Point well taken. Okay. Um, as far as the history stuff, I, I'm in agreement with you. I think that anything that's historical, I, I don't think any knowledge should ever be suppressed. Right. At any stretch of the imagination. I, I think you bring it to light, you discuss it, you debate it, uh, and that's how you, we learn. Now, I, I, from my experience in having discussions about this, I seem to be caught, and I'm not a guy that says the middle's always right, but mm -hmm. it seems to me like there's two sides that make con conflicting, not conflicting claims, claims that don't fit reality. And what I mean is this, you have people that sort of want to deny racism, deny discrimination, deny the history in the country. For instance, in then, the, but the, and they'll say, well, we shouldn't take down statues of uh, Confederate soldiers because that's mm -hmm. the history. But you don't put up statues just for history. Statues are put up as a form of reverence, a, a form of mm -hmm. commemoration. Right. And I got to tell you, as somebody whose last name is Leibowitz, if you put up a statue of Nazis, I would take mm -hmm. offense to it. Right. And on top of it all, to have statues of Confederate soldiers, you're not only talking about people that fought for racism but they're traitors to the country right you know who what country puts up statues of traitors so uh, th there's that side but then there's the side that says that america all you know it was founded on racism the entire wealth of the country was built on slavery and that's not accurate either right mm -hmm. and 
I mean, I don't know what, yeah, I, I don't know your viewpoint on this at all, but I, I'm just, I don't know how you have an honest discourse when people seem so motivated to just have a viewpoint and push it and not actually engage with people of different viewpoints for one or actually consider the viewpoints of others. Well, you know, that's a, that's a big question you put out there, Michael, but you know, I've learned some lessons about, you know, complicated topics and the importance of having discussion. And one one thing that really happens is, is that if you want to get people to talk about really complicated things, they need preparation. You just can't throw people into a room and say, oh, let's talk about race or, oh, let's talk about discrimination um, or, or whatever it might be, right? They need preparation. Uh, and I've learned that. Have you ever heard of the Highlander Research and Education Center? Uh, I don't know anything about it, but I think I've read it somewhere. Like it sounds yeah, familiar, yeah. but I couldn't tell you what it is. So it's one of the more famous places that you never know about. But anyway, it's it's located in Newmarket, Tennessee right now. And part of what Highlander does, and it's done since the 1930s, is provide a place for communities to come and to work through problems. And by the time people are ready to go to Highland and have these conversations, they've already opened themselves up to having the conversation, whether it's about why my community is uh, being poisoned, um, why my mountaintops are eroded and I'm getting flooded out, you know, um, police brutality, whatever it is. And what has to happen is that people have, you have to prepare people to have, have those conversations. Um, they need some context. And too often, I just sit and I listen to people just talk right past each other, you know? And you gotta set some context. This is how the discussion is gonna go. Here are some guidelines and boundaries. You know, what do you do when people sort of overstep the boundary, you know? And so you have to really prepare people to have those conversations, that's one. But two, we've got the very problem that we perpetuate, which is that we don't prepare our students to understand the world that they live in you know we just don't you know i i'm i'm a good example of that i mean i, I learned about slavery and colonialism for migrant farm workers you know i didn't learn that in school you know and then once i'm like, I'm like shit excuse my language uh, how can i not know this you know how have i got some guy who probably didn't even go to school telling me about colonialism in britain you know, why didn't I get this knowledge, you know, or how does he know so much about slavery? And I don't, you know, and so, you know, I didn't get that preparation. This is stuff that I had to pick up along the way on my own. And I, I can see, you know, like you probably know many people who, who've, who've been incarcerated and, you know, a lot of them do get the time, half the time to read in ways that they wouldn't have read otherwise. Sure. And the sense of awareness and consciousness that comes out of that, you know, it's kind of like empowerment, right? You know, I know all this stuff now <laughs> that I didn't know or, or that you don't know. And so we, we, we don't, it, it's hard to have a discussion about inequality when people don't understand the roots of inequality, you know? And it's easy to kind of shut down the conversation and say, okay, um, I had nothing to do with, you know, the inequality that we have here today, you know, and you can't blame me for what my great, great grandparents did, you know, so it's easy for people to kind of uh, toss off any difficult discussion, 
right? But hold hold on one they second. Don't have Can I ask a question? But isn't there a flip side yeah. to that too? Isn't there the side that it, it's easy to just to blame somebody because of what their grandparents did? And that's that is very true too. You, you understand? So it seems like that, and that's kind of what I'm talking about okay. is I used to have, you know, when, when I was in, you mentioned it, you know, we, we were in prison and we would have debates and uh, sometimes mm -hmm. they get heated, you know yeah. what I mean? But, but I learned so much from engaging with people that had different viewpoints in my different, different races. And not that I ended up agreeing with them, but I would get the sort of click in my head. Okay. This is, I see where he's coming from now. Right. And so I get a better understanding. And I, you know, a friend of mine asked me, you know, do, so do you say discrimination doesn't exist? And I said, no, not at all. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it, it, it may very well be true that if he and I go for a job and mm -hmm. all they see is the race, that I have an easier time getting the job than he does. That mm -hmm. doesn't mean he can't succeed. Right. And that, so that's my position is yes, it would be, it, it, I'm not going to say would be, cause I don't know every instance, but all things equal, it probably would be more difficult for my black friend to succeed. It doesn't mean he can't. Right. That it, you know what I mean? And and it's sort of like we get into this thing where you have one side that denies there's any discrimination at all. And another side right. that says, well, you can't make it because of discrimination. And I don't think that neither side really captures the accuracy right. of what's going on. So I think what you identify there is the problem that both sides of the political spectrum face, right? And I think this is one of the critiques of critical theory, right? Is that one of the critiques of critical theory is, is that eventually critical theory, which began as a way to think differently about problems and issues, eventually became its own ideology, right? And then people kind of locked themselves into this way of thinking and that's all they got is critical theory. That's all they got. That's all they can entertain. If it can't fit in that bandwidth, then, you're going to talk past each other, right? And so it's the same thing with a lot of these other um, perspectives, right? Is that there are ideologues on both sides who are unable and unwilling to entertain, you know, the other perspective. I, that's one reason why I, I really tried to develop a way to think differently about race, because if you only talk about institutional racism or structural racism or systemic racism, you know what happens, Michael? Racism is everywhere. It's in every institution, it's in everything. And that is not really a good theory if you're unable to nuance this thing, right? Yeah. So what about individuals in the institutions and organizations? You know, you gotta think about them. You gotta think about the historical context to this, right? And, and so to think about race from just one standpoint or one view really doesn't allow one to really grasp and explain race the way that it really needs to be if we're going to make sense of it. You know, I just thought of a story, a guy, a friend of mine in prison told me he actually was a psychologist on the street. Uh, he's a very bright guy. And mm -hmm. he was telling me how, when he was a kid, and it really, to me, captures the, a lot of the nuance that you talk about. So he was a black kid, but he had a white friend. I believe he went to a school that was outside of his neighborhood. And he, so the, he's with this white kid and the white parents and they're driving him home and the cops see him in the car. So they pull him over black kid in the mm -hmm. car. So this was the, the, this was the racist element of it, mm -hmm. but his friend's white mother laid into the cop, you know, mm -hmm. what, what are you pulling us over for? Why, you know, 
what kind of racism is this? You're picking on this kid. He's a good boy, that type of thing. And I love the story because it captured the nuances of of life. Yes, there was this racist cop, true. But you also were in the car with your white friend whose white parents stood Mm -hmm. up for you. Right, right. And I think that that sort of dynamic is often missed by yeah. a lot of people that, yes, there there's racism out there. And yes, there's a lot of good people that are fighting against it. Well, I'll share a story with you as well, right? So I've, I've probably somewhere between a dozen and 20 driving while Blacks, right? Driving while Black. And so one, um, one evening, I'm at a basketball game a college basketball game and game is kind of over. So I decided I'm going to leave early to beat the crowd out. So I'm like the first one on the street. So I'm walking about my business and I see the police car there and the officers are standing over there. So what? And then, you know, they're doing their thing. I'm doing mine. And then I walk past and say, Hey, I said, what? They're like, uh, we're looking for you. I mean, you're looking for me. (laughs) And so then they tell me that, um, there's a, there was a robbery in the area and I fit the description. So I said, I just came from a basketball game right down the street, right? You, you, you can see the people coming behind me now. And they go, nah, you fit the description. I said, well, well, describe the person. So they describe a man with jerry curls. Okay, I'm, I'm a dreadlocks, right? So they describe a man with jerry curls. And next thing you know, they got handcuffs on me and I'm in the backseat of the police car. Now, it just so turns out that the woman that I worked for, a white Jewish woman, was walking past. And for some reason, I don't know what happened. I don't know whether I caught her attention or something. But I saw her, and she looked in there, and she saw me. She said, Charles, what are you doing there? And then she, she latches into the police, and they have it out. And those guys, next thing I know, I'm, I'm, they're releasing me. And they're probably not supposed to do that once they put the handcuffs on me. You know? But they let me go because she... Like, what the hell are you doing? You know, and again, an example of someone who, you know, and I got to know her better. She had a very strong civil rights sensibility, you know, and she lived that and she stood up for me, you know, otherwise no telling Michael what might've happened. Yeah. You know? Okay. Before I let you go, is there anything I missed? Anything you think we should have covered, didn't cover? I think the thing that um, we didn't cover was perhaps deserves a lot more attention is just the nature of the um, political game that's being played with uh, critical race theory. And the pawns in the game right now are the working class in particular. And so a lot of what's happening right now is really dreamed up in you know think tanks like the Manhattan Institute that have figured out a way to link uh, something that basically the idea of critical race theory, not critical race theory itself in any substantial way, but to link it to the anxieties and the fears that people have at this particular point in time. And they've done a really good job of it. So you can stir up people who have no idea absolutely what critical race theory is, as you just said earlier, to go down to their local school and to fight as if critical race theory is going to destroy, you know, their children. And nothing of that nature is happening at all. So there's an orchestrated campaign. It's been a very effective campaign. But again, you know, I'm old enough to kind of realize that this this happens, you know? And right now we just don't have a, a very good way to counter 
um, the machine right now. So the machine's winning right now. Is there some place people can find you? Do you have a website or a blog, anything? I do have a website. I'll have to email it to you. Okay, that's that's fine. When you email it to me, I'll I'll po- I'll, I'll have my producer post it. All Listen, right, excellent. Thank you very much for the discussion. I really appreciate it. For now, this is The Rational Egoist. I'm Michael Leibowitz signing out. Remember, like, share, comment, subscribe. Till next time.